everybody, and welcome to the Spoiler Warning Podcast. This is review number 734 with a review of Bo is Afraid. I'm Christopher Schneezy. And I'm Stephen Miller. And if you're joining us for the first time, the Spoiler Warning Podcast is a weekly film review program. Each week in the show, we're going to dive in, debate, discuss, and argue over the latest films coming to a theater near you. This week, we are gathering to talk about uh, the latest film from Ari Aster. Um, you know, we we have had a storied history on this podcast of our of our uh, time with the the two films that previously existed from Ari Aster, uh, Hereditary and Midsummer. Um, you know, love them or hate them, they're definitely very very compelling films. I think when the trailer came out for this film. I had no idea what to think, but I was definitely curious what we were about to get into. We're going to find out in a few short moments whether it lived up to or was was anything we could have imagined it was going to be. But we'll just talk real real briefly for anybody who hasn't been with us as long as uh, those episodes have existed. Um, let's just talk about our history with Hereditary and Midsummer. Uh, Stephen, why don't you start us off and let us know what you thought of those two films? Yeah, so I am famously on this podcast a wuss when it comes to horror movies i don't like them <laughs> i don't want to see them when hereditary came out what i heard about it from everyone was this is going to scare the shit out of you oh my god the the things in the background during scenes moving around in the shadows you are going to lose your mind and so i did not watch it i refused to watch it until midsummer was coming out and you convinced me to do a double feature review where i watched <laughs> both of them and so i like I inoculated myself from the terror. I watched Hereditary on like a Saturday afternoon with all the lights on um, in my apartment, like just doing everything I could to not be afraid of it. And it worked. Like I wasn't afraid, but I thought it was really well done. Like I, I thought as a as a psychological horror, something that clearly is interested in other themes about like inherited trauma and grief and the way like families can kind of drag each other down and everything. I, I thought the movie had a lot going on and I thought it was extremely well done. I I thought the way Ari Aster moved his camera around in this house, right? He always finds these interesting spaces to like move around in in the scene. Bo, Bo's Afraid also has some of these too. Um, <laughs> but the house in Hereditary, it was just so cool and interesting. And I really, I enjoyed it, even though, again, I hate being scared and I did not let it scare me. <laughs> so I kind of broke the movie, but I liked what I saw anyway. And Midsommar, I have not revisited our review, but in my memory, it was 100% my jam. Because it was like, this is going to be creepy and disturbing, but as an obvious metaphor for a toxic relationship and how it feels to be stuck in a kind of gaslighty toxic relationship. And I thought as a kind of like deconstruction of that, or just this, like an artist just like taking that idea and then turning it into just the most like gruesome and beautiful visuals on the screen. I thought it was just a really incredible movie. And again, the camera work was just so interesting. He has that scene of the road upside down. He has just these like amazing moments. Um, both of them made me think Ari Aster is a man to watch. I don't know if it's Aster or Aster, by the way. I just keep going back and forth. Um, yeah, I but, never know, so I'm not going to complain. Yeah, I, I thought, I'm going to say Aster. Ari Aster, he clearly has a vision. He knows his way around a camera. He knows how to like project whatever subliminal themes are in his brain and make them into visual, disturbing concepts. And I really, really enjoyed that. So in my head... If he ever was willing to get out of this horror thing, I bet I would like this guy a lot. And when Bo's Afraid was coming around, I was getting my wish. So I was pretty excited, uh, even when reviews started trickling in. 
<laughs> How about you? Yeah, um, you know, like I when, when Hereditary came out, it looked looked interesting, and I think I went into it just kind of being like, okay, this this film looks cool, and I think it kind of you know it blew me away. There there is mm-hmm. there's still one section in the middle of that film which is like one of the most compelling things I've seen. Um, the way to portray what a certain character's feeling in this moment, brilliant. Uh, you know, everything about that film really drew me in. I just double checked and it was my number five film of the year it came out. Um, so like, obviously, huge fan, huge fan. When Midsummer came out, I was like, oh, I'm so excited to see what's next. Uh, let's see what Ari Aster has to go go on. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited to see what comes next. And uh, what I remembered is that I did not care for that second film. Something about like, you know, I like the ideas it was going for, but it was maybe just a little too weird. And some of the things that were happening in that story felt like they were there for weirdness sake and not really like there there wasn't like a, a to me, it just didn't feel like there was a cohesive thing. So, and all I really, really remember about it is like, you know, the last shot, a, a few other uh, choice shots from the film, um, you know, yeah. the eyebrows guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that like group of crying women joining her i think is such a memorable shot i think about that all the time yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but like i remember that i didn't like it and then i pulled up the review and apparently i gave it a must avoid um so <laughs> i i really really didn't like it um but i was still curious you know new film coming out then i saw that trailer for it and i was like oh now I am curious because I don't know what I am going to think about this film because like the trailer, the trailer's weird, right? I mean, I, mm. I feel like the trailer is potentially off-putting for a lot of people. Like you watch this, you're like, yeah. what the fuck is this movie about? Why would I want to see this? I'm I'm going in basing, based on a track record of loving one film and hating a second film. And then now the third film, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll go in. I'll go in optimistically and see what I get. Um and kind of all I really knew going in was that weird trailer that I saw and the three-hour runtime. And, uh, you know, I, we, we, we saw that film, Stephen. This is the one of the rare, rare chances that we were sat right next to each other in the theater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure were. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think we're going to get into it uh, momentarily. Um, anything else you want to say before we dive in, Stephen? I'm I'm just very interested. I'm trying to remember the last time I've seen someone do the horror to non-horror pipeline before. Um, I guess, uh, why am I blanking on The Witch? Robert Eggers. Robert Eggers oh, yeah. is making that switch. But The Northman is not horror, but it is still like... There are a lot of things that are very similar to his earlier two movies in that movie, too. And it's still kind of like serious and violent and stuff. I want to see like Robert Eggers make a comedy. I want, I want to see what happens when someone just does a full flip like this. Yeah, um, yeah it's but, interesting. It's definitely interesting to watch. But but also, Stephen, is, is this not not horror? I mean, the title of the film is Bo is Afraid. <laughs> it's it's something. <laughs> this is um, a deconstructed horror, maybe. Even okay. more, like, all of his movies are deconstructed in a sense. Like, they're very obviously about something else. But this is, like, I am so about something else that the scary won't even be scary to you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is about scary. Yeah. It's about being afraid. I I cracked it. No one who hadn't read the title would have ever thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, Stephen. I think, I think it's about time to get into this. So we're going to play... The trailer for everybody listening, and then we're going to come back and give you all a review. Mm-hmm. 
I am so sorry for what your daddy passed down to you. But I wanted a child, the greatest gift of my life. I'm visiting my mother tomorrow. Hi, Carrot. It's Mom. I'm just calling to say that I'm so, so, so excited to see you tomorrow. You're my angel, and I love you. Okay. I love you. Okay, bye, sweetie. I love you. Are you at the airport? I'm on my way. I just... It's not safe, is it? What do you think I should do? I'm sure you'll do the right thing, sweetheart. back i hit you with my car what i know what was this that's my little assistant health monitor feeling sad about going home Bo? must feel totally unreal i'm supposed to be leaving i don't know if that's gonna happen We'll walk many miles. Dozens will become hundreds. Hundreds will become thousands. Your adventures will continue for years and years. I just need to get home. I know. Do you want the truth now? All right, so that was the trailer for Bo is Afraid. Um, basically, there's this character named Bo whose mother has recently passed away, and he needs to uh, get. Uh, from his place to uh, his mother's house where a funeral is supposed to happen and this is sort of the uh, adventure he goes on. <laughs> um, real fast as a word of warning, this is a hard film to talk about without at least spoiling themes and different things in this film. We're going to do our best to be very vague for as long as we can, but we might just suddenly break into spoilers within the next like 10 minutes or something. So we'll do our best to sort of like you know, ad hoc throw out the spoiler warning. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But Stephen, why don't you start off by letting us know what you thought about Bo is Afraid? Overall, and it took some chewing on, um, I think I mostly really, really liked <laughs> Bo is Afraid. Um, <laughs> here's what I'm going to say, and we're going to get into it. We We even did what we never do and talked a little bit immediately after seeing the movie, too. I think the first hour of this movie is like a masterpiece. I, I think it is so incredibly well done. It is funny, surreal. It's like a romp through anxiety and especially the anxiety that would be fueled by someone who maybe watches too much Fox news. Um, it's the story of a man who lives in a city 
and the city is a wasteland. There are people stabbing each other left and right. Uh, people are firing AK-47s and selling them on the street. Uh, <laughs> there are um, dangers everywhere you find in this like grimy, terrifying place. Um, there are drugs that if you take, you will die if you don't take a sip of water immediately after. Um, Stephen, how how seen did you did you feel by the always with water? I felt so seen with the <laughs> not only the always with water because I always carry water with me, but whenever I have to take a medication and I try to like avoid them, I tend to be kind of like I don't know, keep my stasis, don't screw anything up. Um, I always am so worried about like, oh, my God, did I accidentally take an extra dose? What did I wait six hours like I was supposed to? Am yeah. I supposed to have this with food? What if I don't have with food like that? The way this represents that kind of anxiety that we can assume there's no reality in this movie, but you can imagine the idea of the movie is like a projection of anxiety and the world is like rising to meet the anxiety of Bo, the main character. Um, and these are all the things that might keep you up at night, you know? What happens if I end a conversation with my mom in not the best way? You know, what is the worst thing that could happen next? And this whole movie is like, what is the worst thing that could happen? And yep. we are watching the worst thing happen over and over and over. And that first hour or so from Bo's apartment to the first place that he winds up um, with Amy Ryan. And I almost don't want to spoil that Nathan Lane is in this movie, but he's in the trailer. So it's not a spoiler. Um all of that, I think, is just phenomenal. And it is fantastic because Ari Aster is doing the thing that I think people are going to criticize the movie for. He's being self-indulgent. He is taking an idea, stream of consciousness, and just going like, I'm going to hit this fucking idea as hard as I can. And my hot take is that I think the flaws in this movie, where it loses steam, are when it isn't being indulgent enough. When it pauses and goes like, let me try to explain to the audience what I'm doing. Let me try to tell them. Let me think about whether they're following me or not. Um, there is a beautiful looking scene in the middle of the movie where a play is taking place that goes on for too long. And the only reason I can think of it being there is to kind of hold the audience's hand and like try to clue them in on what kind of story they're watching. There's another series of moments late in the movie where characters have direct conversations where they basically lay out facts that were already alluded to by the whole way the movie was made. And I feel like whenever they talk about it, they're like losing steam in what the movie is doing. So like, I think Ari Aster second-guessed himself a little bit. And I think he started to try to add things to sprinkle to the audience. And that is where it loses me a bit. But the energy of the movie, that first hour, and then there's so much even in the second and third hours of the movie, too, that I really loved. Like a lot of moments where I laughed out loud or just the audacity of it really, really gripped me. I think there's too much here to love for me to be upset that it has moments that deflate and kind of try your patience. I think overall, it is just such an interesting artistic expression made at a level and a budget with a cast that I just cannot imagine this ever happening again, <laughs> ever. Um, I, I walked away being like, my God, there were so many ideas packed in that movie. I would rather be overwhelmed with ideas than like see a movie like with not enough ideas, which we might also review after this, depending on how much, <laughs> how much time we have. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll say more, but this won't be a traditional review. So let's just like lob back and forth and we can talk out <laughs> the specific parts yeah, yeah. of the movie. Yeah, that's fine. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, you know, like I, I, this is a film that I can't really in good conscience recommend to people technically. Mm -hmm. 
I had a lot of fun with parts of it. Um, I thought, you know, as you said, like the beginning of this film is incredibly entertaining. Um, I was totally digging it. You know, some of those parts you alluded to in the middle that involve like more of a traditional journey (laughs) and traditional storytelling, I guess, feel, feel kind of out of place with the world that we've been watching. And it kind of feels like the entire film grounds to a halt so it can do this other thing that's like a different version of an artistic license that it's trying to take. And for me, none of that really, really seemed to work. And then we kind of dive back in as that sort of resolves and we return to the film we were watching the first time. And then it just, you know, amps up a bunch of stuff. And and I think that like there are a lot of really interesting ideas. I kind of I kind of wonder if this is a film that like uh, Ari Aster is too young in his career to be making yet. Like it feels like this is, this Mm. is the thing where like once you've made a bunch of other films and you're like far into your, your career, you can like make a film like this where it's just like you going all out doing your own thing. This is his (laughs) Yeah, no, like I was literally thinking about, I was like, I was like, this feels, I mean, not, not just because it's, you know, it's taking it everything he's built before and then coming here, but also because it feels grounded in some sort of truth. I don't know right. what part that truth is, but it, it's also the, it's the truth of a Jewish director's complicated relationship with their mother. Um... <laughs> yes. And it's like, it's like, huh, okay, this feels it feels like not necessarily self-indulgent in a bad way, but it just feels like you already you already went here like you spent this now like what are you gonna do with three films from now you've already done this thing it's like now are you gonna like i I just don't know where you're supposed to go from here um but i but i think one of the things that i don't necessarily love about the film is it kind of feels like there's so many ideas that are being drawn together that it's hard to see one narrative through point like is this a film purely about fear and anxiety about the world is it purely about guilt? Is it purely about, you know, maybe helicopter parenting, um, conservative upbringing? Like, there's a bunch of things that all feel like this entire film could be just that one thing. And instead, it's so many different things. And I think it's it's not necessarily one thought. It's all the thoughts all all at the same time. And I kind of like it. I, I was I. Part of this is my problem, right? Like I'm watching the film trying to figure out what it's really about instead of just completely enjoying it. And I'm like, holy shit. There was one moment where for a split second, I thought this was the Truman Show. (laughs) And like, we'll get to it when we're in like full, full blown spoilers. But I was like, what the fuck? There's no way that's where they're going with this. Um, And, you know, in spoilers, we'll talk about whether or not they did. But I I was just very, very curious as as every little turn happened in the story, kind of going like, is, are you just doing this because this is the thing that seems the most interesting in the moment? Or are you doing this because this is the idea you had from the start? And I, I couldn't tell whether he was making it up as he was going along or whether he had one cohesive narrative he was trying to tell about Bo and, you know, whoever Bo is supposed to represent, whether or not it's him. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I, I get that. I think the unifying theory, because I, I was thinking about this too, and you and I talked a bit before, because I think the beginning of the movie could easily be understood as a kind of social commentary, right? There's a version of the first 30 minutes or hour of this movie that are a absolute takedown of the state of fear and fear of your fellow man that like the media, especially right-wing media is trying to instill in people. And it is kind of like the 
the vision of New York that Tucker Carlson wants us to believe in, right, is like what this movie is filming in a way that is very, very, very funny and also has like those little kernels of real experiences that it's drawing on where if you have lived in a city you'll kind of see what he's doing and then heightening to a ridiculous degree in a way that is very funny and also terrifying and um so there's a version of this that is like broad social commentary but look at the movie as a whole what i think it is is about the evolution of anxiety and it starts with anxiety as an outward pointing thing of what bad things can happen to me and over time, it becomes like anxiety about the people in your life, your relationships, the friends, the people who are taking care of you, the people you meet, the people you might be in love with. And then it ends with inward anxiety of what if I am a horrible person? You know, what if deep down I am just terrible and I'm doomed forever? And I think if you think of the movie as like one journey through anxiety from like that outward thing to the inward direction it does kind of plot a very clean trajectory. I'm sure there are zigs and zags, but it kind of, it mostly seems to follow that formula. And I think the outward part resonates closer with me because it feels like a social commentary. Like we all live a life where people are anxious about each other and have unfounded fears and things like that. The more it goes inward, the more it is inward to this very specific character. <laughs> and so there are things that resonate, but it feels more like a Ari Aster's uh, therapy session, yeah. which I like. Like, I love me a movie that is a therapy session, but it does make it feel like a different movie, even though I think it is actually about one thing the whole way through. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, it's like when we, were, when we were walking out of the theater, I asked you, I was like, so it, uh, does it seem like maybe Ari Aster's mom didn't really like Hereditary? <laughs> <laughs> on some level it feels like this film is is a reaction or a conversation about maybe the depiction of of way yeah. he is traditionally portrayed motherhood in in right. previous films um yeah well and that is a hundred percent like honestly watching this movie made me see even more the connections between his previous two movies not only because the movie is calling them out with visual gags and things like that but like the the relationship between mother and child you know being being haunted by tony collette like spoilers for hereditary but quite literally like <laughs> that the subtext of that seems very clear watching this movie, but also yeah. Midsommar begins with Florence Pugh's parents have died in a tragic accident. And I believe she wasn't picking up her phone, right? Because she was with her boyfriend, if I'm remembering right about how the movie works. Yeah. And at the time I thought like, Oh wow, what an interesting exploration of like the completely irrational guilt someone might feel watching Poe is afraid. I'm like, Oh, this is like you playing out your deepest anxiety of like, what would happen if I didn't pick up the phone? You know, why do I need to be the perfect kid all the time? Um, yeah. And I, it, it does in a way, this pairs so closely with the beginning of Midsommar where this is just like, we're going to explore what happens if you don't pick up the phone. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it, it is very, very interesting. Um, there are also visual homages to his previous movies that, again, it makes a point of doing. Like, one of my favorite scenes is in that first hour masterpiece section. Um, he is in a bathtub, and there's dripping, and he suddenly looks up, and there is a sweating man holding himself up on the like walls trying not to fall um which if i remember right in hereditary the exact same thing happens with like a you know demonic tony collette or something like that is on the <laughs> ceiling <laughs> um, 
like the exact same thing. Um, I would say losing someone losing a head in a tragic freak accident um, is certainly something that he has explored before. Um, there's a scene that is like the closest to like the scary movie version of Midsommar here where people are literally like on top of a similar high place and then jumping and dying on, on a rock. Um, there are things where he's playing with his visuals in that kind of Fableman's way where you could argue he is acting like he's more famous than he is. And like, you're right. There's a version where it's like, dude, you should probably wait until movie number 10 to do this when you've built up enough cred that everyone will delight in your references. But I don't know. I kind of, I delighted in it anyway. Yeah. Especially if, if you're planning on doing a, a film that might not make people want to give you money to do another film, mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you want to save that till you've done a few for them and then you could do one for you. Yeah. How did you feel the audience in our theater was uh, experiencing this movie? Uh, I mean, the, the funny thing about like, you know, I already mentioned that this is like one of the rare times that you and I were sit sitting together in a theater, but also due to the nature of Theater 5 at the Alamo Draft House and the seats that we chose, we were a little bit just isolated, just us. We had our nice little cozy corner <laughs> for this film. And like, uh, there was definitely laughs around us. But I feel like I could only hear us laughing <laughs> during most mm -hmm. of the film. Yeah, I, I felt that too. <laughs> I felt some people talking around me. I, I wasn't. I was trying to zone in on only focus on the movie, but yeah. I, I felt like people were getting a little bit bored. So I don't know if if even an Alamo audience was getting bored by it. I have a feeling general audiences are not going to be <laughs> vibing on this movie too much. Well, but I don't know. I was like the way people talked about it. I thought it was going to be some kind of excruciatingly like trying your patience and being aggressively unpleasant most of the time um like there are aggressively unpleasant movies i like like her smell right it is a thing where alex ross perry like tries to be aggressively unpleasant for the first like 45 minutes of the movie bo's afraid is not that at all like i do not think this movie is aggressively unpleasant ever i think it plays like a fun crowd pleaser that just goes on and on and on and on and gets weirder and weirder in a way that will confuse people but i don't see people being like i hate it i'm so angry i'm I'm kind of surprised that that's the reputation that it got yeah well, uh, well if you if you define i hate it i'm angry as aggressively unpleasant then sure but i might argue that some of the play stuff is aggressively unpleasant <laughs> <laughs> but I okay. didn't. I didn't hate it. I mostly was just like, ugh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just. I love like the cast he managed to pull in this movie. Like Walking Phoenix is obviously great. I I will watch him do literally anything um, until inevitably it comes out that he's some terrible person in a few years, and then I retroactively <laughs> cancel him. But for now, in this pre-cancellation time, I will watch him do anything. Um, but the side characters, like Parker Posey, I feel like I haven't seen her in anything in a long time. It, it was fun getting to see her. Stephen McKinley Henderson as the therapist. He's just like such a great character actor whenever he pops up in anything. And I feel like he's used to a really good kind of not inverting his character, but they take him to some places that make it extra funny that he is who he is. Uh, I will always laugh whenever Richard Kind shows up in a, in a movie about Jewish guilt, which is all of them, as far as I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> he's just so good in that role. And Nathan Lane, like, he's such a silly kind of foppish character to be here. And I had a ball watching him. Every time he is like, 
flipping burgers and being the like the dad who's trying to keep everything cheery, even though things are not actually cheery. Like I was cracking. I loved him in this movie. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Like all that stuff was fun. Like there's so much fun stuff yeah. in this film. It is it is just really out there, though. And I like, you know, I I enjoyed a lot of it. I enjoy a lot of the themes, too, which we will start to get to shortly. Um, yeah. But but I still don't know who this film is for. And I don't <laughs> know. Like, I don't know what any individual person walking into this theater will think about this. It's hard to go like, look, just give it a chance. And by the end, you'll really, really love it. It's like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like, I can't, I can't tell anybody to go see it because they might just never listen to it. <laughs> I have to say again after they leave the theater. Um, and I, you know, I, it, it's, it's, it's weird. This is going to be either a film that you're going to love or you're going to be like, what the fuck did I just watch? That did not work for me at all. And yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think there's going to be a lot of middle ground for this film. What I will say is I think you should see it in theaters if you are going to see it, because I can imagine at home with a phone within arm's reach or something, there will be moments where you're like, yeah, I'm watching, I'm watching. And then you start scrolling or doing something else. And I think this is a movie that you need to be held hostage by it <laughs> <laughs> for better or worse. I think it just is going to play a lot better in that in that scenario. Do Do you think an audience could ruin it for you, though? Like... If you had a bad audience who was really not liking it and decided to make sure everybody knows that they don't like it, I feel like it could go both ways. It could either heighten your enjoyment or just kill it based on other people not vibing with it in real time. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I almost think an audience like yuck, yuck, yucking the whole time would annoy me more than an audience silently not liking it because <laughs> like <laughs> this movie is definitely funny but it is like a, a tragic comedy that is also exploring neuroses and like deep-seated fears and stuff like that and i think there's a version of the like cocaine bear audience just roaring with laughter at the movie that would annoy me more um <laughs> yeah i don't know I don't know if active, unless they were like booing at the screen, but, but I've never been in, <laughs> been in a situation where that actually happened. I think you should go alone or with someone who you either think will enjoy it or whose opinion you don't care about. I think if I were going with like my wife and I could feel her not liking it, it would maybe ruin the movie for me. Yeah, this is not a date movie at all. Like, no. Like, you know, very specific couples maybe it is i i think yeah. that yeah I, I think that feeling of oh my god what did i drag them to is going to be the thing that could destroy this film for you where you can't you can't even you can't even feel it in real time because you're just like every every little thing that it, that you're you know it, it's it's the date equivalent of uh the theme of this every every worst possible outcome is happening right now right <laughs> you're like oh but my god they... there's still three hours left <laughs> The thought experiment is I think that first, like, again, I think the first hour or 90 minutes is incredible, but I'm I'm going to say first 30 minutes for the, like, unambiguous, this is, like, the city anxiety being heightened and put on screen. I think anyone is going to love that. Like, I'm actually shocked if anyone, any date that you bring on this movie <laughs> isn't having a blast <laughs> with that part, unless they're, like, getting offended on behalf of someone or what I, I don't know like i guess there's a version where you read it in the worst faith imaginable and then get upset by it but i i just think there's so much hilarious here it builds way more goodwill than i would have ever, ever expected from the kind of 
word I was hearing coming out of theaters when it first started screening. But yeah, maybe don't bring a date to this one. (laughs) Are we diving into quick spoilers and then doing, or no, diving into verdicts and then doing some spoilers? Yeah, let's go ahead and do do our verdicts and then um, and then just we're we're full blown spoilers from then on out. Um, So Stephen Miller. If you're going to give us a must-see, record with the caveat, wait for until pass with the caveat, or a must-avoid, what would you give it? Man, I, I try to remember how I scale my ratings usually because I believe I believe this should be a recommend with a caveat because there are big caveats, like, obviously. <laughs> and I also don't think it is a perfect movie. Like, I see things that feel sanded down, bloated areas that I wish he had done it differently. But then, like, the feeling I have just knowing this movie exists is, like, a must-see feeling. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say recommend with a caveat, because, again, if this were executed flawlessly, I would say screw the fact that 95% of people are going to hate it, must-see. Um, but because it is not executed flawlessly, even if you love it, I think you're going to have things that frustrate you a little bit. And just know that going in. You are watching a big, messy extremely entertaining thing with a hundred ideas and i think it should have cut down a few of the weaker ideas and committed more wholeheartedly to the rest my my summary my elevator pitch is this is oh brother where art thou if charlie kaufman directed it but not like early charlie kaufman more like (laughs) the last act if i'm thinking of ending things charlie kaufman (laughs) um and if that attracts you, then you should definitely watch this movie. If that uh, terrifies you, then maybe you should not watch this movie. Yeah, um, I definitely like this more than I like. I'm thinking of ending things. Hmm. <laughs> I will say that. Um, yeah, I already said at the beginning of when, like when we started talking here in this episode that like I can't good conscience recommend this to anybody, but. Rating system be damned. I have to say, recommend with a caveat because yeah, it, I that that's Woo. that's the feeling I had minus that middle section of the film. Even though I'm like the caveat is that I don't actually recommend it to anybody. <laughs> I am flabbergasted. I was so sure you were going past with a caveat. I I I had no idea you were anywhere near recommend with a caveat. <laughs> I the the beginning is genuinely great. The ending is genuinely great. That middle section, eh, I, I could, like, I, I told you when we were standing outside of the theater that I could do a fan edit of that film where I completely take out that section and show it to somebody who's never seen the film and they would not feel like anything's missing. Earlier earlier in this this review, you mentioned that, like, you feel like he has this great thing going and then he feels like he needs to, like, explain to the audience what he's doing. I, I don't feel like he is catering to anybody. I think he really wants that stuff to be in there for reasons that I don't understand because you don't overstuff. You don't make your film three hours because you're worried the audience isn't vibing with the other hour of work that you did. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. Like that That's counterproductive. Like you pare it down to like the, the central bits and then say like, I, I trust the audience to get it. The fact that he went for three hours means that he thought all of that was important to the story he was trying to tell. And I don't feel like it was pandering. I feel like it was like, no, this is my, this is my masterpiece. <laughs> Interesting. See, I, I'm not saying he put that in because he didn't think the audience was vibing. But I think some of those choices are the equivalent of being like, oh, do you get it? Do you get it? Let me explain to you. Just let me make sure that you get it. Which is 
arrogant in its own way because it's saying like it's so important that you understand this that I'm going to lay it out for you. But I think it, I feel like it comes from a lack of trust in the audience, and maybe he just loves it, right? Like he clearly loves the visual aesthetic of that middle section, and honestly, I love the visual aesthetic too. I just don't think it justifies the duration yeah. of that part. Um, but yeah, beyond the things he loves, I, I don't know. There are just times where I felt him like not going as hard as he wants. And in spoilers, I might surprise you with some things that I think do not go as hard as they should have gone, including a visit from a friend we may have seen in Man Seeking Woman. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did think of a specific Tanaka. character. <laughs> Tanaka Tanaka. <laughs> All right, Stephen, for people who aren't going to stick around for spoilers, should we say, say goodbye to them? Uh, yeah, I mean, you should always say goodbye. You never know when a chandelier might do something <laughs> that you don't want it to do. Um, you can find me at twitter.com slash sdavidmiller or sdavidmiller.com. People can find me at ChristopherInRealLife.com or Twitter.com slash ChristopherIRL. You can find the podcast over at TheSpoilerWarning.com where you can get a bunch of the back episodes of the show. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can do so on Overcast, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts are found. If you want to know when the episodes go live, you can follow us at Twitter.com slash SpoilerWarning, Facebook.com slash TheSpoilerWarning, or Instagram.com slash TheSpoilerWarning. If you want to get a hold of us directly, you can send an email to fans at TheSpoilerWarning.com, or you can use the contact form on our site. Music for this episode will come from a track selected from Artlist.io, so hopefully you're enjoying that. And yeah, as we said at the top, this film requires spoilers to really dive into, so that's what we're about to offer you. Um, so if you haven't seen the film, maybe go see it, <laughs> and then come back and listen to this segment. Or, you know, who knows? Just stick around and listen to what we have to say, because this, this is going to be like the actual diving in and talking about the themes and what the fuck we think is going on in this film. And uh, yeah. So that music's going to fade up. When it fades out, we'll be in full-blown spoilers. So hold on to your head. All right, we are back. This is spoiler territory. It's the after part of a review of Bo is Afraid. We are talking full-blown spoilers for the film. Um, Steven. Where do you want to go uh, at the start? <laughs> Man, I don't even know where to start. I mean, the, the movie at the beginning is just packed with so many jokes. That's that's part of it. Like, Birthday Boy Stab Man with a, will uh, be in my head for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I was watching the film, the, the, the funny thought I had in the back of my head is that uh, this all this outside of his apartment is what people who don't live in San Francisco think Market Street and Mission Street are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love, like, one of my favorite little throwaway jokes that you and I talked about when we were leaving is, like, there are these posters at the entrance of his, like, very shitty apartment building, and it's, like, band posters um, for, like, a punk uh, venue or something like that, and the band name is Murder by Fuck. <laughs> I just thought that was, like, the, the most hilarious, like, Matt Stone and Trey Parker type of fake band <laughs> that they would come up with. Um yeah, I love I love the like fake New York City and all the stabbing and the murdering and how horrifying it is for him to leave the apartment. I love that. I um, I, I don't. Uh, sorry, I was, I was just gonna say like at the you know during the main episode we were talking about did you feel seen by the 
by the water um, after taking the pills thing. I definitely was thinking of those, that, that that moment. The the spot that I felt seen in uh, was when the neighbor kept telling him to turn down his music. <laughs> like I I'm generally somebody who like when I live in apartments I'm I go out of my way to not make noise. I don't jump on the floor. I don't bang things around. You know, like I try to be quiet. I have headphones on for like 18 hours a day. I'm like never doing yeah. anything that loud because I'm so worried that I don't want to be the person who like annoys like a neighbor and just the idea that somebody thinks that it's me is, is my own version of anxiety hell where I'm like, no, yeah. I'm not making any noise. How do you, what, why do you think it's coming from me? This is crazy. I, f- I feel a hundred percent seen by that too. I also, I, Joanna is in South Carolina all week. So I've been alone in the apartment and I still watch everything. Um, in headphones all the time because I just have a, a a strong desire to not make any noise that might make any neighbor hate me for a second. Yeah. I will say in terms of like the Charlie Kaufman connection, that is like the most Charlie Kaufman-y thing in the movie to me. That reminds me so much of like the scene in Anomalisa where I think it's Anomalisa where he's saying something and no one can understand his accent, even though he's saying it like perfectly normally and everyone keeps asking him to repeat it. Um, <laughs> This is like that. It's just this like fear of being misunderstood by other people or having yeah. something like blamed on you. Um, yeah, loved all of that. Loved everything about the the New York City scene uh, to the point where there there aren't even spoilers. I feel like I need to ruin because it's just like banger after banger after banger. Like the density of jokes in that sequence is just incredible. It's so funny. I feel like I need to watch it again when it comes out on home video just so I can like scrub through and see all the little gags and stuff like the the name of all the stores like i know there was one that was like erection injection or something like that like <laughs> every place was just named the most ridiculous thing <laughs> yeah it, you know, it's definitely a, a film that will that will uh you'll you'll get a lot from just going frame by frame in all those scenes in the main part of the city um yeah so if i can if i can jump around a little bit i want i just want to get out of the way at the beginning so we could talk about the stuff that's quote real i want to tell you like the moment that i was starting to wonder if this was truman show um because obviously part of the story that goes into the fear goes into the guilt of his mother is this idea that like she devoted all of herself to try and protect him as he grew older and you start Mm -hmm. to find out that like all these people that are from his life have some sort of connection to his mother. Um, in reality, or you know, in the reality of the film, it seems like it's just people that are touched by things that her job touches or owns and stuff like that. Um, but in my head, I was like, holy shit, did she engineer an entire world? It's like the right. like what if his entire life was that that poster on the wall of the travel agency in the Truman show with the lightning going through the plane and it said it could happen to you? Yep. <laughs> And like I was like I was like, did she engineer this whole thing just to like a helicopter parent and her kid and make sure that he wouldn't ever have sex with a person <laughs> or possibly be hurt by anybody? And I, I was like, this is fucking insane. And then I was like, okay, that's not what it's doing. But also, it let me it let me linger on that thought for like way longer than maybe I should have. I mean, I think it's. Like, it isn't doing that, but only because there's no objective reality of the movie. I, def- I definitely think there is a hint of that. Like, it is kind of the cosmic arrested development, like, and that's why you always need- leave a note guy, <laughs> where yeah. it's, like, everything in his life. Because, like, the... Okay, the reality of the movie, which is all theme, right, is Bo... 
he is terrified of everything. And he has inherited that terror from his mother, who is a literal like CEO of a bunch of products that are meant to make people more safe. Like she is like a manifestation of the person who is like, you have to worry about this. You have to worry about that. You have to worry about this, this, that. And his whole life is completely haunted by her to the extent that it is 100% informed by her. Like he lives in an apartment building that she built and he... um you know, he uses products almost exclusively that she creates and everything in his life are in the movie kind of touched by her. And the objective reality, I assume, is just that he's a guy who feels like his whole life is devoted to his mom and yet she still doesn't think it's good enough. Yeah. And that's kind of like the thing that he's playing with. Um, but yeah, it, de it definitely has that bit of a Truman Show feeling. Well, yeah, I mean, in a way, it's sort of like it's doing like the idiocracy thing, right? Where like in the future, there is only like there's like one brand of food and then one brand of like appliance. And it's all like these two companies, right? It's like her, yeah. his mother like is, you know, somebody high up in a company that just makes every aspect of our daily life. But it also seems like none of those, none of those aspects are particularly good for anybody. They all have their mm -hmm. problems and just... It's just like a fucked up world that she is like brought forth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can we, I don't even know where to jump next. I, I guess I'll jump to one thing that I don't have an answer for yet, which is in the Amy Ryan and Nathan Lane parts of the movie where he's staying in their house. Um, there are a few moments when Amy Ryan is alone with him for a second and she's desperately trying to tell him something like, don't incriminate yourself. Be careful turn the channel, look at this. And she's trying to tell him that something nefarious is happening. And when he finally turns the channel, he is watching himself and he is fast forwarding in the future to see all the terrible things that are happening. Yeah, that was the weird do, thing that threw me too. Yeah, like, do we think, I don't think there is a literal reality to that. So it's fine. It's just his like, his anxiety again someone warning him about all the horrible things like things are too good to be true right now so someone has to be telling you like don't get too comfortable um but there is a version of that where it is like again the truman show where everyone is in on it and his mom is watching and his mom is using all of that as proof that he's misbehaving or something yeah. and i wasn't quite sure because she's talking about not incriminating yourself and then at the end of the movie he's basically on trial for being a horrible person and so i <laughs> i just didn't know if the movie wanted to connect those things or not but is there something too where like there because obviously he didn't he didn't know his father um because his father well at least he's told his father uh, died while he was being conceived <laughs> in, mm -hmm. in the, the gnarliest how your father died, died story I've ever seen in a film. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, like, so so Nathan Lane is, is sort of like a father figure who seems to be doing everything nice, but he sort of doesn't trust it. He's trying to escape mm -hmm. his mother. He seems to have this recurring like theme of other women who aren't his mother potentially being his salvation from whatever the problem is. Mm -hmm. There's the young girl on the boat um, who <laughs> comes back towards the end of the film. Yeah. Um, and then and then, you know, in this case, he is trapped in this house with this potential father figure who is sort of seeming to want to keep him here just like his mom does. But then the other woman mm -hmm. in the house is like, hey. You need to get out of here. You got to escape. Yeah. I don't know why the daughter doesn't play into that role other than the fact that like, you know, she's, you know, <laughs> going to fall victim to self-harm. Like, like to, to me, that is um, 
it, it's like the white lotus. It's like the fear of young people that you don't understand and how cruel they must be and how they're laughing at you all the time. I, I think that's what she is for him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there is definitely something there. I mean, like we can talk about the kind of psychosexual <laughs> aspect of this movie, which is clearly in the heightened story that the movie is telling. He has been taught that having sex will literally kill him and that it has happened to every other man in his life. And so he needs to be terrified of it all the time. And to me, that is very clearly a sort of like the religious guilt and shame that he was brought up with and the way that it fucks up his relationships yeah, and yeah. his ability to form a connection with people. And it is interesting how, like you said, he he is at once terrified of women because he has all of this like repression and guilt. But then because of that, every woman he sees who is remotely nice to him could be his salvation. Like, you could argue the reality of the movie is at the very beginning when Amy Ryan is in that kind of truck helping homeless people, right? She's giving free injections or maybe it's like she's giving food or a little bit of everything. I don't know. She's, she kind of seems like she's just like a good person on the street. And now he has imagined this world where he gets to live in their house and she is like impossibly nice and is looking out for his best interests all the time. So that there's something there. I wish I could interview Ari Aster and learn about his actual sex life <laughs> to know how much, <laughs> how much guilt has actually ruined that. Cause in the movie it's, it's a lot. Well, it's interesting because like, you know, it, it's, it's one thing to have this, uh, this idea of the fear of sex like like trained into you by your upbringing like it's that dangerous that you could literally die if you climax right like that is one thing but the fact that like it doesn't seem necessarily like he has been plagued by multiple chances to have sex with with somebody and then backed out because of this fear because he also has the other aspect of this the first girl that he encountered on this cruise ship said, wait for me. And he just decided I will. <laughs> and like, yeah. it's almost like he is, it's once it, like, maybe this ties back into the thing with the mother is like a woman tells you to do something and you just obey it. And that's sort of, mm -hmm. maybe that's, that's tied into that a little bit. Like there's something interesting about yeah. like the fact that it's not like this isn't, you know, the 40 year old virgin or something where he is, like just super awkward around women and doesn't know how to interact with them and keeps like weaseling his way out of anything. It, it's, it's, he specifically was like, Oh no, this, this girl, this girl when I was 12 said, wait for me. Yeah. And I just figured she would come back one day, <laughs> but, but also yeah, that it definitely is the kind of the classic of like wanting to like fuck or marry your mom syndrome <laughs> that I've heard many people talk about before, especially when it comes to like helicopter parents. Yeah, it, it is. It it is weird all the all the shots of her younger like the the quote devotion that she has to him is it's definitely it's it's definitely not not sexualized. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I mean like it, the movie makes a point of having her laying in bed with him multiple times and you yeah, know, yeah. facing him and they're having pillow talk and everything and it is very <laughs> much about this kind of like which again makes total sense that this movie is blowing up the idea of a like not literally romantic relationship with the mother, but like unhealthy closeness or a level of like dependency um, yeah. and how that can screw you up. And that definitely seems like this, like she doesn't want anyone else in his life because they all threatened in some way, her own status as, as number one. 
Yeah, I, I think, too, that Cruz is one of the other things that made me think about the Truman Show situation is because it, it's literally a self-contained thing, you know, almost like an office building where all these people were there and there just happens to be one other child that's of, of his age. And she's like, see, there is another child here. Look at that. And it's it sort of yeah. like felt too convenient with like the, that setup. But then I also wonder, and Stephen, question for you. Obviously, there's the big reveal at the end. He has sex. He climaxes. He doesn't die. <laughs> but then she yeah. dies. Do you think the mother was also trying to keep her away from men because that was also a thing that was happening in her yeah, I think her mother was doing that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That, that was my read of it, too, is she has been living the exact same life as him. Um, but in her case, it's actually real. <laughs> but then you go back to the Truman Show thing. And again, I can't stress enough. I'm going to be a broken record. I don't think there is a reality of this movie. So there's no such thing as like what really happened. But I do think the fact that it turns out that Elaine, the, the girl on the cruise, who is now the woman played by Parker Posey, is an employee of his mom's company is meant to have us at least have this level of anxiety of, oh my God, is my mom involved in this somehow? Yeah. Um, which, again, the movie doesn't then reveal that she planned it, but it does show her then having been watching the whole time <laughs> afterwards, which is like the <laughs> deepest nightmare of that. Yeah. I cannot escape my mother's gaze. <laughs> when when she's first dead, I did I did have the thought, is she faking her death just to show her son what could happen? And the fact that mm -hmm. she does, but also actually kills somebody who apparently volunteered yeah. <laughs> like somebody else's life she's ruined. Like that, the sinister, sick, twisted nature of that. Like she was just hanging out in the funeral house, <laughs> just waiting, waiting for him to eventually show up so that she could guilt trip him. Um, but then she waits yeah. for him to have sex. It's like... She she had to think he was going to die in that moment, right? Like, why would she not burst in and stop? I mean, obviously, like you said... I mean, I don't think her story is correct, right? I think she's... She, the truth, and this is where we can wonder how much visual wordplay is involved in the revelation about his dad. Because he wants to see his dad. And he finally is allowed to because he is brought up to the attic. And in the attic is not only his other brother who I guess existed and has been chained there the whole time, if I'm understanding that correctly. <laughs> sure what it um, seems like. <laughs> yeah. But it is also his dad, who is a huge dick. <laughs> Which, <laughs> is that the message? Because that's what made me think of Man Seeking Woman. It's like you are literally rendering a concept and you're doing it in a kind of juvenile way. Um, there's another version where it's like her, his mom kept his dad's dick chained up in the attic, you know, like, so his mom was controlling, but I feel like the way she plays it at least is I'm trying to protect you from the reality that your dad didn't die. Your dad is just a dick. He's like a horrible person. Yeah. And I didn't want you to know him because he's so terrible. Or, <laughs> and we are literally making a big dick <laughs> to, to represent that. Or it could be that, you know, they were saving themselves for, for marriage. And then as soon as they had sex, he just turned into just a, just a, a big old hound dog. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dan Savage would call it a t testosterone-soaked dick monster, <laughs> um, which seems <laughs> about right. Yeah, what, whatever it is, like, that would imply that it's, like, she has become protective of him because she has been wronged, and it's kind of this cycle, which made me think 
of another movie that you and I both watched at the same time in Theater 5 at Alamo Drafthouse that also doesn't make a good date movie. Um, but we both brought significant others to, which is Men. <laughs> <laughs> which is similarly a kind of a director that has had two pretty beloved genre pieces under his belt and then deciding I'm going to go fucking wild <laughs> this time around. Um, but Men... You know, it, it is seen through a woman's point of view, so it's a little bit different. But the big reveal, the big visual, oh, my God, how far are they going to go, is this l litany of men giving birth to other men, each more awful than the one before them. And the idea of, like, terrible, toxic masculinity being passed down through generations. Yeah. And I just a part of me thought about that attic scene. And I was like, these movies have, like, a little bit of the same thing that they're trying to say. <laughs> This, like, nightmare of the, like, the masculine thing being passed down. <laughs> There's also a bald, a bald guy jumping around in the jungle. Not the jungle. In the, yeah. In the, in the garden outside. Uh. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, we see, uh, we see full frontal in both movies in a very unsettling way. So let's talk about the reversal of all this stuff um, that happens as well. Like, when, when, when the mother is not just seen as the villain, but it sort of portrays him as potentially the villain to the story, you know, like the entire film and one might say even previous films is all about, uh, you know, like what uh, being raised by a parent of this type um, can do to you and what it puts you through and like sort of the pain you endure just having to try to please this parent. Um, mm. And by the end, it sort of tries to flip that on its head and go like, you think this has been a pain for you? Like, I have devoted everything to you, so much so that I locked your twin brother in the attic because I only had enough love for one person and I chose you to mm -hmm. be the, the person that had. Um, yeah, there there's something super interesting where it's like, I it didn't, it didn't make me feel 100% sympathy for her, but I understood the context of like, yeah, he's been kind of mean to his mom in these movies. <laughs> and, yeah. And yeah, I all mean, she ever did was love him. <laughs> yeah, and it's the total again, I there there are aspects of this here that I assume are like very much tied up with like the Jewish culture in general. Like it just seems like there's a lot of very specific references. There's even a like a very funny I think it's like Steve's Shiva. Yeah, Shiva, uh, Shiva like Steve's. I wish I Shiva remembered Steve's. there was like a subtitle too that was like yeah, you know, you know, food for your morning or something. It, like I wish I... exactly. Yeah, there's something really funny. So there are a lot of little jokes here, and so I don't mean to be like pretending that I know about those specific things. But this broad idea of the the parent who is overbearing with love, right? And how do you deal with that? Because they're irritating you. You kind of hate them. And you love them deeply and you're terrified of hurting their feelings and all they want is what's best for you, but they're fucking crushing you <laughs> because <laughs> of the way they're doing it. And this movie is just literalizing that so much. And that trial at the end is 100% that where she she isn't wrong, but her love of him is a weapon and she's using it to feel better about it herself. And it's kind of like, um, yeah, like he loves her so much he will race across the country and risk death a million times to try to go to her funeral, like to try to be there. He feels so terrible if he's going to miss, make her upset for even a second. Um, 
but then he really doesn't want to even like pick up the phone when she calls and it's like that paradox of like god i love you and i'm terrified of you and (laughs) i don't know there's just a lot going on that reminds me of my i think my favorite joke in the film is when the ups driver is the one that that like answers the phone and then he's like dude i don't know if this is your mom here how about this how about you hang up and you go back and we'll see if you call the right number and then like he answers the phone he's just man i'm sorry I just love see I started laughing even before that when he's just like oh yeah you're right maybe I dialed the wrong number and then he's like hanging up and it says mom <laughs> oh man so good so good <laughs> but yeah I I think too um you know it, it comes right before I mean it's in the trial um they use the references in the trial but you kind of see it a little bit before that is just you know when somebody annoys you you, you sometimes you just need to vent and you can get it out right mm-hmm. you can complain about the person you can you can talk about the way they make you feel and then you know you've gotten it out maybe it gets better maybe it doesn't but if you are venting to somebody you always have the the implicit trust that you are venting to them and this is secret the idea that you're going to see a therapist <laughs> and you're mm-hmm. just every day you're like here's all the problems with my mom I have to go see her. This is going to suck. Blah, 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 blah. And then it turns out that the therapist is on her payroll and also has been sharing every Ooh. single thing you said and is now going to bring it up in a court of law. I mean, court of law, a court of something. Um, yeah. <laughs> that was pretty, that was, that was definitely an anxiety moment as well. Oh, for sure. I mean, again, this whole movie makes so much sense if it's just like the literalization of every anxiety you could ever have. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, do you, speaking of literalizing every anxiety, do you think, the very end of this movie, the way this movie ends is Walking Phoenix is on his boat and then like it like flips, like catches on fire and flips or something and he's drowning. And in the background, the crowd of people, the audience is leaving like they're all just walking out. Um, do you think that was a nod to audiences wanting to walk out of this movie and the fear of people like nobody even wants to see you drown in your own neuroses i i felt like there was a very meta self-deprecating thing happening there it was a hundred percent and i love that we sat there for the whole thing until (laughs) until both our audience and the audience in the background of that shot were completely (laughs) gone and like the guy was trying to clean up and he was just standing to the side going like uh i'm gonna go talk to my therapist later about how these two guys wouldn't leave the fucking theater Because I like that. That was where I felt like the self-awareness really like rearing its head again. Because it's like the whole movie, you could say the whole movie is Ari Aster be putting himself on trial for all the terrible things he's ever thought or ever done. Yeah. And then everyone else is like, I don't want to fucking watch this. A hundred percent. Yep. Uh, so... Speaking of the weird... Oh, yeah. One thing real real fast about the dad. It was funny. Early on in the film, you see a shot of his dad, like a picture of his dad on the wall, but it's kind of blurry and it looks a little bit like he's hammering in a nail. (laughs) In my head, I thought we were going to find out that the way he died was trying to hang that picture. (laughs) (laughs) That shot was taken as he fell backwards and like hit his head or something. But no, it's just... it's, It's something more... 
both more literal and more metaphorical is that he has no memory of his father so the photo itself is blurry and i was like okay i guess occam's razor applies here (laughs) which again is where i get a little bit of anomalisa in this movie because it's like taking an idea and like literalizing it like it's kind of the equivalent of everyone looking the same in that movie like he doesn't remember this person so he can't see a face anywhere but speaking of his dad and this is probably my last spoilery question um there is a scene in that forest section that you mentioned could be cut. I, there are things I like in the forest section, but I think I mostly agree with you. The movie would work fine without it. Um, there's this guy who has been watching him for a while, and then they finally start talking. At first, he said he was with and cared for his father. And then he seems to say that he is his father, or at least like Bo thinks he's his dad, and then he dies. Do you think that connects to anything or is that just like another moment of Bo being like, I don't know anything about my life. Anyone I meet could secretly be my dad. Like, I I didn't really know how to read that part. Yeah, I I wasn't certain either, especially in the context of finding out that (laughs) his dad is just a big penis monster. And I was like, what does he mean by take care of? Did he like wash Watch the father? Was he like a fluffer? I think he did something else. <laughs> like, I was just, I was just curious. Uh, what, what? The, I, I was too confused by that. Though I will say that when you finally see that guy, in my head, he looks a little bit like the guy in the photo that is on the wall, the blurry photo. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I don't, I don't know. But also the like the creepy way he talks about like I'm not your father, but I but I helped take care of your father. He's just very, he's, he's a very interesting fella. Um, and I don't really know what all that is supposed to mean. Uh, other than just, you know, maybe one of his fears is that his father's been out there the whole time and he didn't know who he was, but he could have known who he was. Um, but that's yeah. also right around the time that he thinks he has three sons, <laughs> which, mm-hmm. which he can't have because he, he never had sex with a woman. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah that that is one that i don't I, I don't have any kind of answer for what the uh the whole three sun reveal means other than like even in your wildest fantasies what you imagine for a future can't be possible because nothing good can ever happen to you <laughs> but <laughs> it seems like that's a long build-up to get to a idea that simple yeah, yeah which is one of the reasons why i don't like that section <laughs> mm-hmm. i'm just like what the hell am i watching yeah, I hear you. And I forget if I said this or not, but my actual final personal thought is that, look, I laughed in the attic seeing a giant penis monster. was funny. Wasn't expecting it going in, so it gave me a chuckle. I don't think he went far enough at all. Like, like, honest, like honestly, that looked... I mentioned man-seeking woman before. That looked like the kind of gag that that show was pulling off, like every 30 minute episode yeah. right of just like i'm gonna take an idea i'm gonna make it literal i'm gonna blow it up and then you're gonna laugh at how outrageous i got i think he could have like quadrupled down i wanted him to go full alex garland <laughs> and, and just like make it a litany of horrors for a long time and i don't know I, i'm only mentioning that because i have peeked at some like letterboxed responses to this movie and at least critics have pointed to that scene as an example of like, wow, he went out there. No one can say that he didn't go hard. And I'm kind of like, <laughs> I don't know. It was a little flaccid. I, w- I want you to go harder. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't that flaccid. 
Right, a little bit, just a little. So, do do you think that was also some sort of like homage to Enemy as well? No, that, that's funny. Because it definitely, it definitely. I don't, I don't want to fully spoil Enemy for anybody, but it. I know exactly what you're talking about yeah. from saying that. <laughs> Good times. Wow. Good times. I can't top that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Then I guess we'll just leave it at that. Uh, th- th- thanks, everybody, for, uh, <laughs> for listening. Hope hope you enjoyed hope you enjoyed uh Bo's Afraid and our discussion of it. Bye. Thanks. <laughs> Bye.